Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dan White, co-founder and CEO of Clean Crop Technologies, Clean Crop Technologies is developing high-voltage atmospheric cold plasma technology for reduction of food waste and crop loss across the food space. It's an interesting topic because food waste is such a big source of GHGs, but it's complicated. Waste comes from different parts of the process, from the supply chain to the consumers itself to the farm. And in this episode, we take a deep dive into the different sources of food waste the source that Clean Crop specifically is going after, the origin story of the company and how they came to be solving the problem that they're solving, the intricacies of their approach, some of their progress to date, their long vision, what's coming next, and of course, where they need help. If you want to learn more about food waste, this is one that you won't want to miss. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I just saw you the other night at a little founder's dinner. So I feel like we're already caught up, but there's always more questions to ask. And, and we can also help raise awareness for everyone else about what you're doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Really uh, excited to share with the rest of the MCJ community. Nice. Well, why don't we jump in? What's Clean Crop Technologies? Yeah. So Clean Crop, we're an ag tech startup. We're based out in Western Massachusetts. And at a high level, we have basically, we're bringing cold plasma to industrial scale to help solve a number of the different challenges we have in our food system. So we basically combine electricity with different food grade gases to remove contaminants from food surfaces, extending shelf life and reducing food safety risk at the same time. How'd this all come to be? Yeah, I grew up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. That's a big agricultural area, big apple growing area. And so that's my whole career in agriculture. Started working for a friend's family's orchard back in, in high school and college, and really kind of just fell in love with the 
the whole food system at that point and dabbled a little bit in setting up a hard cider operation with them and then wanted to kind of travel the world. So I spent most of my career overseas in emerging markets, spent a lot of time in the Middle East and in Sub-Saharan Africa. And about five years ago, met my co-founding partner, Dan Cavanaugh, who at the time was working as a commercial manager for Cargill in East Africa. And he and I partnered on and off on a couple of different projects over the years and looking at finding ways to try to unlock value for in, in export markets for farmers in, in Africa, Southern Asia. And, you know, when you're working in the supply chain space in agriculture, you're really just kind of playing a really fast game of Tetris between the stuff coming out of farmer fields, which any given year you might have a supply glut, you might have a shortage. Some years you're going to have really bad issues with pests or with different contaminants, particularly in emerging markets that don't have really good supply chain controls. And on the other side, you're trying to kind of match that with ever-evolving customer requirements, export market regulations that are constantly changing and kind of fit these two different things together pretty quickly and eke out a little bit of margin on top. And in that process, you just kind of get caught up in trying to put out fires day in and day out. But there was one day that he and I were working on a, a peanut project and we're trying to make the numbers work, but there were, you know, it was really this kind of huge set of supply chain contaminants that were coming through that were just driving a lot of the cost structures on, on this project and kind of developed this thesis that, you know, right now, as soon as those things hit the supply chain, there's not really a way to deal with these contaminants. You can't really turn back the clock. And once they're there, they're just an embedded cost in the system. They're huge drivers of waste and they're also huge drivers of human health problems. And so we set out to find a tech that could address these problems. And initially as a hobby, but over the long term, became increasingly seriously, we, we looked at a huge range of technologies. We looked at UV light, high pressure pasteurization, but eventually we stumbled on some papers from Dr. Keener, who's now our chief science officer, who developed this high voltage atmospheric cold plasma system and started tinkering around with it. And we're really excited by what we saw as its ability to degrade contaminants without hurting the quality of the food, which coming from that supply chain side is a huge component of any of these solutions and started tinkering with it. And one thing led to another, and we were able to bring it to scale at the R&D phase. So. And if, if I can kind of pair it back, just to test my understanding of what you're up to, at least what we've covered so far. So essentially, when food is shipped during that process, if contaminants are introduced, then as the food goes through the supply chain, there's some percentage of it that ends up spoiling because of these contaminants and the Initial hypothesis was if there was a way to help avert some of this spoilage from the contaminants that it could have a huge impact both on margins because there'd be less waste, but also on impact because it would take less resource to bring the same food supply to bear. So you were looking at different potential solutions. You uncovered this technology that was in the lab that you thought could apply and that eventually became the basis for what clean crop technologies does. Yeah. I mean, the food system has a lot of problems, as you're well aware. Um, climate change, both as a contributor, you know, being responsible for up to 7% of greenhouse gas emissions through various modalities, but also as a direct threat, you know, changing climate is and the resultant crop failures from, you know, increasing flood incidents and drought and everything we're seeing in, in California, for example, you know, is probably one of, to me, the scarier, the scarier outcomes and seems like one of the higher 
higher probability drivers of the kinds of systemic collapse that are the sort of worst case scenarios that we hear about is we get to a point where our food system can't, you have three years in a row where your staple crops in a critical mass of the world undergo late frosts or flood conditions in Illinois, combined with wildfires tearing through Bakersfield. You do that enough times and you start to see pretty structural food shortages around the world. So climate change is obviously a, a huge driver here was for us, but it's it's one of many different problems. You know, there's structural issues with just overutilization of resources, water shortages, as well as just a lot of systemic injustices in the food system. And what really attracted us to this technology is that it seemed like it had the ability through being able to remove these contaminants from food surfaces in a way that was pretty agnostic of the underlying food substrate that was agnostic of, you know, what other use case was there could really solve a lot of these things at the same time. So by removing those molds from food surfaces, you can enable those foods to last longer from farm gate to the end consumer, meaning the chances that an end consumer is going to throw that away go down, You keep more food in the supply chain, both so that whatever emissions have been embedded in that food from production through to transportation and into that consumer's refrigerator don't get wasted, so we don't have to duplicate them. But also, and in in many ways, much more importantly, you're keeping that organic matter out of landfills where it converts into methane emissions that, you know, per ton are much more potent greenhouse gas emissions than even CO2. And so really, we see our ability to keep food in the supply chain, keep it from getting wasted, either through getting burned or ending up in landfills as the most direct impact that we can have in the supply chain space on just making sure that every calorie we produce one way or another is making its way to satisfying the growing food security challenge that we have ahead and keeping down those total emissions needed to get there. And before we dig too far down the path of the particular path that you're taking to address food waste, maybe, and I don't don't know if you have these stats off the top of your head, but just kind of frame the problem. So what are the different key drivers of food waste generally? Yeah, it's a really complex problem. There's a number of kind of meta-level analyses that all have slightly different numbers. But in general, the general sort of stylized facts in this space are that you've got around a trillion dollars worth of, of food is wasted at some point between the field and the end consumer every year. And I think the something close to 800, I might get the specific tonnage is wrong, but it's around 800 million tons translate into that trillion dollars. And it's a complex problem. So the key drivers of waste are are different depending on where you are in the world, depending on what crops you're dealing with. So, for example, in the developed world, in Europe and East Asia and U.S., more waste occurs the further you get from the farm gate to the end consumer. And a lot of it is fresh fruits and vegetables. So I think something close to 40% of fruits and vegetables in the U.S. end up getting thrown away. And the majority of that is at the consumer level. Whereas when you go to emerging markets where supply chains aren't as mature, but aggregate consumer behavior is much more attuned to making every calorie count, by the time it gets to the end consumer, there's very little waste. But where you have a lot of waste is between the farm, in the farm, and in the supply chain on its way because you'll have failures in cold storage. You'll have other contamination problems that occur because there's less controls on the food safety side. And so at a high level, though, there's this aggregate waste that is massive and is anywhere from 10 to 40% of any given product anywhere in the world is lost before it actually reaches anyone's mouth. And what is it that led you to focus on the contaminants piece specifically? Well, food, food safety was kind of the initial focus in the company, largely because it was just a 
a pervasive area that we saw sort of was structurally undervalued, we had found. You know, at the time, back when we were starting to look at the company in 2016, 2017, the original research, there was kind of a burgeoning interest in ag tech, but the vast majority of that focus, and I think even still today, the vast majority of that focus has been really looking at the production side. There was sort of a seminal report that the World Bank put out about a decade ago that estimated that, you know, from at that point, we would need to produce 70% more food by 2050 just to be able to maintain our current food security needs. And all of that in the context of climate change, where we needed to figure out how to do that without putting another 70%, you know, increasing the land use for agriculture by 70%. So that meant finding other efficiencies in the system that we could, we could work on. And so a lot of the focus in those first years really seemed to be focusing on how can we do crop breeding to create crops that have higher yields? How can we look at other on-farm technologies like precision agriculture that could really help boost yields per acre in a sustainable way? But very little focus was being put on the fact that there's still, you know, at least half of that that production, in some cases up to half of that production, nearly half of that production was getting lost between that farm gate and the end consumer of what we were producing today. Yet very little attention at that point was really being paid at that side of it, at this supply chain solution side. And so that was really because it was where I'd been focusing a lot of my career. I saw this as an opportunity where there were a lot of technologies on the shelf that could just help us keep whatever food we're producing already in that supply chain long enough and safely enough to be able to satisfy some of those food security needs in a way that just really structurally reduces the pressure on other parts of the supply chain at the production side to try to figure out how to eke out additional tons of food per acre when we're having a hard enough time just maintaining those current acreages as it is. So when you set out to look for potential solutions, what are your learnings from going out and looking at different technologies that were in the lab and for any other aspiring entrepreneurs out there that are maybe starting down a similar path, what advice would you have for them as they're navigating and trying to evaluate which technologies might be ripe for commercialization? Yeah, I think my partner and I are sort of atypical being hard tech founders in that we don't, you know, we're not engineers, we're not scientists, you know, we really came at it from this problem side. And so, you know, we kind of developed, we backed into these heuristics when we were at that discovery phase trying to find a solution that I think I would really recommend any other entrepreneur, whether you're the inventor of a tech or you're kind of surveying the landscape for something to work on, would use. And I think, you know, we really set out knowing what that market was going to be able to bear at scale. And so we had a real focus on not just what technologies are doing cool things at the 100 gram, 200 gram level, but if we crunch the numbers today, what is the energy use if we were to scale this directly up to treating one ton of food, 10 tons, 50 tons an hour? What would the form factor of that machine look like? Would it be the size of a football field? Would it be close to something that would fit inside a processing facility? Where would that fit in? And, you know, obviously any of these technologies in the lab are going to be immature and you're going to hope that there's going to be a, a lot of room to optimize and improve efficiencies. But at first pass, there was a big difference we found across technologies, just in terms of how much optimization you would need to get that electricity consumption, for example, down to a level that was viable to get to viable unit economics or how much optimization was needed to drop the form factor of a unit that could do 10 tons an hour down to something that could fit inside an existing processing facility. And so I'd really recommend, you know, as early as possible, focus on paths to scalability. What's your line of sight on scalability backing out from what that eventual customer is going to need? 
And that's going to be the best guide you can use to really focus your resources efficiently. And can you talk a bit about the technology itself and how it works? Yeah. So, you know, plasma systems, they've existed for, for several decades in various industries. Right now, most commercial plasmas are used for things like sterilization and surface etching and deposition in like the semiconductor industry or, you know, advanced materials. And most of those are, they operate at a low pressure. So you pull a vacuum on a system and you basically create a voltage differential. So you have a high voltage electrode and a an anode and a cathode that creates a high voltage field. In that case, you push some sort of gas into that and then you use that to accomplish some process. And it's been kind of a niche technology, largely, you know, only really relevant in these very high value sort of small, small form factor industries because it's just been very expensive to use. And what we really saw as the potential for it is if you could figure out how to make a plasma system work at atmospheric pressure where you didn't have to pull a vacuum you're really dropping the unit economic requirements significantly. You're dropping the amount of energy needed to operate the system. And that's really the first core innovation that we focused on is figuring out how to create a plasma system that operates reliably, reproducibly at scale, at industrial scale, to be able to process tons of food per hour in atmosphere, which causes its own set of technical challenges, which you have to overcome. But if you can do it, it unlocks a huge range of potential applications. And so at a high level, we basically create a high voltage field. We push gases through that that turn into reactive gas species that can have the ability to degrade contaminants on food surfaces. So they can degrade pathogens like E. coli or salmonella, listeria, a wide range of toxins. So one application space we've spent a lot of time on is, is something called aflatoxin, potent carcinogen, but also the common molds. So white mold that you might see in your strawberries or brown mold on your lettuces, our technology can degrade those extending shelf life in the process. And so we're able to, through some unique innovations that we've developed, turn this plasma system into a highly tunable machine to really focus on degrading those contaminants while leaving alone those things that really matter for food quality. So we can you know, degrade the salmonella without, without oxidizing the fats or the lipids or the micronutrients, depending on the food that we're treating and that's really the core challenge area that we've, we've focused on in terms of, of solving, which is ultimately what the customers need to be able to adopt this at scale. So where does it sit in terms of the, the process of bringing this food to market? And also, how is it delivered? Just practically, like, is it your own hardware or yeah, where does it live? Yeah, so it's our own hardware. And you know, we're really targeting in general for a number of use cases that we're looking at, we're targeting people in the supply chain side. So folks who are buying kind of raw products from farmers and then processing them before those get sold on to the final CPG manufacturers. And so we're building a hardware piece that will fit into a agro processing facility alongside every other piece of equipment. So in the nut sector, for example, you know, there's processors today that have, you know, a long line of machinery that's shelling and cleaning and sorting and grading those nuts as they move from farmer stock to the final stock for sale. And our machine's just going to sit alongside that processing line. It's going to be slightly different, you know, where it sits in each supply chain, but in general, yeah, it's a piece of hardware that's going to sit there and just be a final decontamination step before it gets sold on to the next customer. So what needs to change, if anything, in terms of how these customers do what they do in order to incorporate this technology into their process? 
It's slightly different for every supply chain, but in general, you know, we've really tried to focus on building this in a way that it's really easy to retrofit into existing facilities. So process integration is really just a function of, you know, is there a point in this facility where food is moving at a speed or in a form that we can can process it ourselves. So at what point in this facility can we eat most easily integrate without having to disrupt the way that the other equipment sits? And so with most application spaces, we really focused on customers where we'd be able to kind of bring our machine in. It would be relatively plug and play as a retrofit without having to trigger a huge redesign of the, the process scheme for the, for the entire plant. And when you look at the potential types of foods that you could provide these capabilities for, how do you think about the trade-offs as it relates to profitability, for example, across categories, viability across categories, and impact across categories? Is it generally cookie cutter or do these sliders, if you will, change a lot from one category to the next? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's what we spend, I think, my partner, I spend most of our time thinking about is kind of looking at the trade-offs across these categories. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of impact, we see big differences in the type of impacts that we have from one vertical to another. I mean, for example, if you're looking at you know food safety, so salmonella remediation in the nut and grain space is a big area we're looking at. There's potential impacts on the climate change side just through displacing more energy-intensive solutions to those problems today. So, for example, right now, today in the almond sector, there's a regulatory requirement that almonds are pasteurized for salmonella. And there's a range of those technologies that do it today. Some of them are pretty energy intensive. And our system is up to 20 times more energy efficient than those existing solutions for salmonella. So we can kind of displace thermally. Would the policy need to change, though, in order to displace that requirement? No, it's just a validation process. So when you have a new solution to a food safety challenge like this, there's a board out there that has sort of a checklist that you just have to show that your tech has killed enough salmonella in this context and validated that in a real facility and that you just kind of get added to the list of acceptable solutions. So it doesn't require an overhaul on the, the policy side. And so in that context, there is some climate impact there, but the human health impact is really high, right? So we can really help move the dial on a number of these human health problems. We can help address a lot of sort of global economic issues with the way that these supply chains operate. You know, if you can really help emerging market producers handle some of these contamination problems, you're helping level the playing field with what markets they can access. So there's sort of a cascade of different applications. Maybe avoiding recalls too, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Avoiding recalls, reducing import rejections, you know, at the point of entry. So, you know, there's thousands of containers and shipments that get rejected every year at the Port of Rotterdam or, you know, in the Port of Louisiana, Port of New Orleans. And so, you know, the more you can kind of help manage those issues, you just reduce those rejections and and save a lot of costs in that way. But you you move to looking at something like shelf life extension in meat and seafood, the climate impact is huge because the embedded carbon in those products per pound is massive. And in a lot of what you're able to do is enable your customers to, to really reduce a lot of those transport logistics, the carbon that's embedded in those. So for example, if you can add time, you know, significant days to, to shelf life for raw seafood, you're able to really move a lot of raw seafood that today has to go directly from that boat into a processing facility and onto a plane to get shipped to you know, Omaha to still be fresh by the time it gets on someone's plate. You can move a lot of that for some of the more regional geographies onto shipping containers that can really reduce that embedded those transport, the carbon footprint of that transportation for those products. 
in addition to having those food safety impacts. And so, you know, when we look at those, we have kind of a two-pronged strategy. Our primary focus with the core tech is we're really most interested today in those application spaces where we're at profitable unit economics at as small a scale as possible just to get the tech out there and to have it start to interact with the real world because that's ultimately what's going to really accelerate our ability to find efficiencies, to ruggedize the tech, and then unlock a lot of these bigger opportunities down the road. And so that's why we focus very much on the, the application spaces that are not the largest markets that we see, but are the ones that are closest to getting to market today to help us ruggedize the technology because we see it as the straightest path to really capturing as many different application spaces as possible with as much impact across all of these categories that we care about as soon as we can. We raise an interesting point because there's one multiple time, very successful entrepreneur, and he's done a bunch in clean tech as well as some other verticals, but what he told me is that even if you're purely climate motivated with your first beachhead market, you shouldn't necessarily factor that in and you should just find some place, as you said, where you can get a beachhead somewhere and get the unit economics right and kind of prove it out and then, you know, down the road expand from a position of strength and then incorporate more of those mission elements over time. That's tricky for a fund like us that is so climate motivated because, you know, we want to be assured that the thing that we're backing is taking a big swing at climate. And if someone takes that approach, even if it's the right one, there's some chance that they go in that market that maybe has a lesser impact and they they never return. So we wrestle with that one, actually. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is at the end of the day, I can imagine for your fund, if your thesis is, you know, we want the straightest line to as much impact as we can, because this is a massive problem. And, you know, we just need to do it as fast as we can. I think my argument when I when I have this conversation with investors is it's not so much that I'm saying, well, you know, I got to zig before I zag. I think from a technology perspective, what we found is that the straightest line that it's it's not so much do I focus on on this market that has maybe has slightly less climate impact today, but I can get there with a unit that can process one ton an hour, or do I focus on this market that's got sort of 10 tons an hour and you know minimum requirement, but has more climate impact? I think that the, the argument is not, well, I need to go do this first, and it's then going to kick out my time to market you know, to this other application space by another two years. I think my argument is, and our thesis is that It might take us four years to build that 10-ton unit simply because we're having to wait until we hit all sorts of technology scale before we can even get the unit into the market. I think that if we take one year, build that one-ton unit, it's going to take us only three years to get into that higher climate impact space because the pace of innovation and generation in just from having contact with the real world, having to operate 24-7, having to company build around that application it unlocks all sorts of opportunities, accelerates all kinds of development and ruggedization that I think I think will actually be the fastest pathway. There's always opportunity for mission creep. Market applications always look you know, different over time. But I think that as long as you've got climate as part of your core thesis as a company, as we do, and as long as there is clear application in everything that you're working on, I think within that bundle of application spaces, our focus is just the sooner we can get this technology into the market, the faster we're going to get to any level of impact for across any vertical. So if you weren't optimizing for impact and you were purely a capitalist, would you go after different markets or go in a different order or have a different approach in terms of how you take this to market than you are? That's a really good question. 
I think in our case, not necessarily, because I think in either case, if what you're saying is you're trying to solve for scale, you know, every ton of product that we treat is one ton of product that's going to have marginally less risk of loss, marginally higher value for our customer. Those two things go hand in hand. And I think the, the focus for me is how do we get this technology into the world as fast as we can? And that would be true regardless of what the operating principle of the company is, because I think, I think for any given outcome, that's going to be the most important thing that we can do is just get contact with the real world conditions as fast as we can. And it's generally the, the recommendation I would give any other hard tech entrepreneur is your product's never going to be perfect. The sooner you can get it out into the world, the sooner you're going to figure out what you need to fix before that's, you're going to have you know, a real operable, scalable product out into the world. So how long have you been working on it? What are some of the key phases you've been through so far? And where are you today? Yeah, so we started the company officially in January of 2019. And at that point, it was really just Dan and I and our chief science officer who invented the core tech kind of working at a base level. We were part of the Mass Challenge Boston Accelerator that summer and built some traction in some of our beachhead markets, built a couple sort of prophetic prototypes. And then we had a seed round we closed last June, built out the company now. We've got about 14 folks on staff, had our, our first customer field pilot in the spring. And right now we're just focused on getting our first unit out into the market at some point next year to start generating revenue and moving into as many additional verticals as we can. And in terms of category, where are you starting? And in terms of business model, how much have you thought through and worked out what the go-to-market business model will be? And do you anticipate that that will evolve as you get further in? Or do you have a good sense of the scaling model at this time? Yeah, we're we're really focused on, I think, initially deploying on a fee-for-service model. So we'll be building these units, getting them out into customer hands, and in the near term, operating them, at least in the near term, operating them on a, on a fee-for-service basis. And, and I think there's a number of advantages for that. One, in most of our, most verticals we're looking at, that's a pretty widely accepted and growing service model is moving away from asset ownership and towards hardware as a service. It really reduces the perceived risk on the customer part to adopt a pretty new technology. And it's going to give us the ability to be really high touch on this in those first, you know, five years of operation. When you build a new piece of hardware that's integrating, you know, different fundamental disciplines, you really want to be able to see what the maintenance cadence is and kind of manage that in-house without just sending a unit out to a customer that bought it and have them call you every three months when something novel breaks that you didn't see in your accelerated aging tests. So initially we're going out to market on a fee-for-service basis. And I think over time that might change. I think as we move, you know, across verticals, there's always nuance that we want to be open to. And it's going to really be an open conversation with the people that are most interested in the tech in different spaces. But but yeah, I think in the near term we're going to be really focused on that. It seems like the fastest path to getting as many units out into the world as quickly as we can. In what market? We're going to be looking at remediation for these contaminants in, in nuts and grains. So that's our, our first set of customers or are in that space, displacing thermal pasteurization and generally improving food safety there. But uh, have another set of other key verticals lined up in the hopper that are still at the R&D phase right now, but are going to be rolling online in the next couple of years. So. Great. And what's the pitch? Sorry, the pitch in terms of... Oh, so when you're talking to potential customers about why they should do a pilot with you, what do you tell them? Well, most of the time we're targeting application spaces where either there really isn't a solution today 
Or if there is one, we've already been able to do our homework and really find that we're orders of magnitude cheaper to be able to accomplish that. So oftentimes we're going to be talking to customers in spaces where maybe they have existing solutions for one problem, but our tech is, you know, pretty broad spectrum in terms of the contaminants it can remove. And so we can offer some value addition that differentiates from others. So in the almond sector, for example, right now there is no solution for aflatoxin. Really, there's only solutions for salmonella. We can solve both of those problems, which are the sort of top two food safety challenges in that space for a fraction of the energy demand. So that translates to reduced electricity costs and operation costs for our customers. And do they ask for things like ROI, payback period, Yep. It's all part of the, the conversation, you know, and a lot of it comes down to sort of every sector has a different unit, but most people like to negotiate, you know, around a price per pound or per ton. And it's really just kind of benchmarking against what they see is that that value for that lot. So if you're an exporter, you're sending products to Japan, you've got a perceived profit margin there per pound for your almonds. You've got a risk that you've priced in for aflatoxin or salmonella. And you know how much you're paying per pound for steam pasteurization today, for example. We're able to come in and and usually be pretty competitive on both the price point as well as the energy consumption that goes into it. And given that you are so mission-driven, are you planning to track things like how, you know, not just the financial metrics, but the impact metrics as well? And if so... When do you start that, especially given that you're so small and resource constrained and have so many things on your plate? And also, what are the key metrics that you think would be most impactful to track in this case? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think one thing that has been really tricky as we've been digging much more into the food waste questions in particular is that it's clear that this is a massive problem. It's a huge driver of our emissions problems. It's a huge driver of the number of natural resource challenges that we face but it's also really difficult to definitively understand how those things occur, you know, supply chain to supply chain. And so I think for us, you know, a key thing that we've looked at is potential partnerships with groups like Refed, for example, looking at who do a lot more in-depth supply chain level analysis, tracking food from the farm gate to that end consumer. And really trying to find partners who are aligned with us, who are interested in identifying supply chain, doing the research, trying to track product understanding some counterfactuals that between product that's been treated and hasn't for the good of helping us understand long-term as a sector, how do we actually move the dial on these challenges? So trying to find those third-party groups who can really do the heavy lifting from a resource side to track those hypotheses and try to iterate and adapt over time that way. Because like you said, we're a small group. We can't really track every nuance here, but we think that's probably the way forward. And key milestones you're driving towards over the next, say, 12 months. Yeah, right now it's all about getting this first product out into the world and going from prototype to something that is repeatably, scalably manufactured and put in front of customers. And so that's our big focus right now, as well as really trying to ramp up and scale up our our R&D capabilities across a huge range of additional verticals that we've had kind of in the wings, but just haven't had the bandwidth to focus on today. And if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your progress, what would it be and how would you change it? Yeah. Yeah, I think someone being able to figure out a way to, to reliably reliably help our end customers quantify and put a cost on that, that food waste question. You know, I think there's a structural market failure today where you see this trillion dollars of food that's wasted but when you actually dig into these supply chains, very few people are actually capturing that on their P&Ls. 
And I think one way or another as a food system, we need to figure out ways to to re-internalize those costs somewhere so that someone has an incentive to really solve them. And our focus in this front has been to really focus in on those aspects of food waste where, where it is being held as a cost point today. But uh, there's a huge set of food that's still getting thrown away that isn't as accessible to market-driven solutions because because no one really sees it as a cost. And I think that's a huge area for policy innovation. It's a big area for, for sort of structural support tools, analytics, traceability technology that could solve some of these questions that I think could really unlock and help quantify and drive solutions in that food waste space. And then within the scope of your control, where do you need help for anyone listening that is intrigued by what you're doing? Who do you want to hear from? Yeah, we're actively hiring for a range of roles. You know, they'll be up in the MCJ member group here soon. Really, anyone out there that's passionate about food safety, food waste, innovation around the intersection of plasma and engineering, electrical engineering, anyone that's just got a ton of passion and willingness to learn, love to hear from you and always looking to build our network of folks passionate about this intersection. Great. And Dan, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Yeah, just really appreciative for everything you've been doing. Longtime listener, first time caller here, and really excited to talk more with folks in the community about how we can collaborate on trying to trying to get this tech out into the market as fast as we can. Awesome. Well, really inspired by your work, and hopefully this episode helps with some visibility and awareness and some high quality inbound for you. And uh, wishing you and the whole Clean Crop Technologies team success on your long journey. Hey, thanks a lot, Jason. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.